So open up uh, again your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. That's where we are. Uh, Josh read the passage that we're going to look at this morning already. And, um, you know, as we begin to look at this passage, um, you know, I, I kind of want to bring in the context. We did uh, Romans 1 in the fall, and then we did uh, Romans 2, I think, through January it was. And then uh, here we, we took a little break after Romans 2 for Easter, and now we're, we're picking up in Romans 3. And so it is important that we remember uh, kind of the context that led into Romans 3. One of the things that we find is that... Um, that in this passage, the Apostle Paul kind of demonstrates for us or, or shows us how to uh, speak to our friends, our family, our neighbors who are not believers. Okay, uh, that's essentially what he's, he's going to do. But what, he's, what he was doing in uh, Romans chapter 2... Let me back up again. Um, Romans chapter 1, we saw his introduction and we see the gospel. We see the theme of the book of Romans. And then uh, at, the, at the second part of Romans chapter 1, we see the apostle essentially tell uh, the non-Jewish w- uh, world that they need the gospel. They need Jesus Christ, that uh, their idolatry and, and all of those things uh, are, are useless and it leads into some terrible sins. And then in Romans chapter 2, Paul begins addressing the Jewish members of the, the, the church in Rome. And he begins to tell them that their, their traditions and their signs are not what saves them. And even going so far as to say that certain circumcision itself is of no use to them because uh, if, if they only focus on the outward and, and their heart is not circumcised. And so Paul is going through and he's telling the Jewish people in that church that they need the gospel. They need Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that all the promises that they know from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant, all of those promises pointed to and were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what we find in Romans chapter 2. And then in Romans chapter 3, it's one of the most famous chapters in the scriptures. And what we find in Romans chapter 3 is that we're sinners. All right, so Romans, second half of Romans chapter 1, the, the, the non-Jewish world are sinners. Romans chapter 2, the, the Jews, the Jewish people are sinners and they need the gospel. And then in Romans chapter 3, he kind of crumbles us all up together and he says the entire world is sinners. None are righteous. You all, all of us, every single one of us, every single person in the world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Okay, so that's, that's kind of leading up to what Romans chapter 3 does, and he's kind of continuing over a little bit his argument from chapter 2. So that's where we're going to pick up. And before we jump in, uh, let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning, and and God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We thank you you, um, that you accept our worship, that as we sing praises to you, that, that, um, that you hear them. God, and as we pray to you, God, we, we thank you uh, that you hear our prayers. And you are not a God who is distant and far away, but you're near and you care about, about us. You care about what's, uh, what we're going through and what we're enduring. You care about our growth and our faith. You love us. You love us far more than we can imagine. God, we, we thank you so much for that. We, we thank you for the fact that even though we're sinners, even though we've turned our backs against you and shaken our fists at you, that you've not abandoned us. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in this room this morning, that as we study the scripture, that you would transform us and sanctify us through your word. 
And God, we pray uh, downstairs the, the same thing for the, for the children and the children's ministry. We thank you for the volunteers who are ministering to the children downstairs in boot camp. And, and we pray for those kids and we pray that the gospel would be de- declared to them and that through your spirit you would transform those children downstairs. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in, in chapter 2, Paul has been kind of pounding away on the false assurances um, that the religious Jews of his day were clinging to. Remember, they were, they were uh, they're very religious. They were outwardly moral people. They knew right from wrong, but they were faithless. They, they were hoping in uh, their traditions and their past and their, their outward behavior, and they had no faith in Christ. And he did that in order to show them that when, when they appeal to their, their privileges or when they argue from their privileges that, that God had given to them apart from obedience or apart from a, a faithful response to those promises of God or, or, or apart from um, embracing Jesus Christ who's the Messiah, those privileges that they relied so heavily on actually condemned them. And so that, that's kind of the point that Paul was making. He's going... Th- He's gone through these series, and the Jews have defended themselves. And one of the ways that, that Paul wrote Romans is that, well, the apostle was an incredible apologist. He defended the faith. And so as he would write, often through the book, you'll find the apostle kind of address some objections to his teaching. And so he'll, he'll lay out the objection, and then he'll, he'll explain the objection and defeat that objection. And that's what we find in Romans chapter 3, at the beginning uh, verses here in Romans 3, where Paul is raising these objections to show how, how they don't fit. Okay, and so um, he, he goes through that, and, and the religious Jews of his day were relying so much on their past and the old covenants and the signs of their promises. And against all of those things, Paul looks and he says, Look, when I look at you, I see a, a life of disobedience. When I look at you, I see a, a people who haven't really ever understood the promises of God. When I look at you, I, I see people who have rejected Jesus, who is the Messiah. And, and therefore, I don't see any ground for you to stand on. I, I, I don't see a reason for you to stand in, in, in confidence before God. I, I don't see any ground for you to, to be confident in your relationship with God. And so he, especially as, as he speaks of their circumcision, he says, uh, look, look, your circumcision means nothing unless it's a circumcision of the heart. Your outward circumcision, your circumcision of the flesh is meaningless if that's, if that's all there is. And immediately here in Romans chapter 3, verse 1, he raises the objection then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? So he's addressing, he knows that that his Jewish audience is going to ask this question, and I'm sure he's been asked this question many times. Paul, if if that's the case, let me paraphrase, if that's the case, then you're saying that circumcision is worthless. You're saying that being a Jew is meaningless. You're saying that being a part of the the covenant community is useless. And to say that, Paul, would would, 
would be to say that, that the God who instituted those things in the Old Testament had instituted something that is of no value. Paul, what you're saying is against God. I want you to see two objections in this passage that are raised against Paul's teachings, right? And then two answers that Paul's going to give us. But I want you to, um, I want you to see, uh, as, as we deal with, with what Paul is having to say here, not only significant to the first century Jew, it also applies to us today. What Paul says is, is especially applicable to those who have been in the church, who have been Christians for a long time, for decades, maybe all your life. Uh, that's me. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents loved Jesus, and they, and they raised me to love Jesus as well. And one of my very earliest memories is, is my mom leading me to Christ. And so uh, church was a part of our life, and uh, doing, making the right choices and, and as far as biblical choices. That's just a part of my family life growing up. That's a great blessing that my parents gave to me. But this passage that Paul is addressing is especially applicable to people like me who have kind of been raised in the church or have been a Christian for a long time. What Paul has to say to us is just as sharp and just as applicable to us as it is to them. Don't sit here and read Romans chapter 3 and point at first century Jews and say, man, they sure, they sure didn't have it together. They sure needed to listen to the Apostle Paul. Right? Because Paul is addressing us as well. The first thing we're going to see is that the promise must be embraced. It has to be. Right? So first of all, uh, look at verses 1 and 2, right? Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It started in the form of a question, didn't it? I, 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 honestly, I, I really think that, that Paul dealt with this objection regularly this type of question regularly remember his pattern of ministry was to preach in the synagogues as he would travel on his missionary trips he would preach in the synagogue for three weeks and so for three weeks he would preach and then after the third week he would pull a small group of people a small number of people and he would uh, basically start a bible study and he would begin to train them in the ways of christ and so um, no doubt in the context of that training he would get but but paul what about this or, or paul what about this or paul are you are you really telling me that this is true or, are you really making this claim paul this is against everything that i've ever been taught can you explain it more he would have dealt with this regularly, but from the Jewish perspective, from the Jewish perspective, one might say those Christians, if they, if they really take that to the logical extent, it just means that, that all of the ordinances of God in, in, the Old, in the Old Testament meant nothing. That all those promises from the prophets and from Moses and, and the promises to Abraham, those Christians think that it, that it was insignificant, meaningless. And so Paul is pointed in his reply, and, and he, he, he's very clear here. He, he got this objection in the form of a question. Well, what is the advantage of being a Jew then, Paul? 
If, if what you're saying is true, what, what's, why is it important? What's our, our advantage? And Paul, if what you're saying is true, why bother being circumcised in the first place? Why would God have even given that ordinance if, if what you're saying is true? If I have to be circumcised in the heart, then why bother being circumcised in the flesh? If it's true, if you're not circumcised, if you're only circumcised outwardly, if you're only circumcised of the Spirit, if the Spirit circumcises you, why not just forget the circumcision of the flesh and go right to the circumcision of the Spirit? And to be honest, that is a good question. But the Apostle Paul says, in a nutshell, you have a great privilege of being a Jew. You have been given an incredible privilege, an incredible advantage as being a Jew. And he begins to retort the, the, uh, to show specifically what that advantage is. Now, I want you to note, uh, look at verse 2. And what he says here in, in the ESV is to begin with. Maybe your, maybe your version says first of all. And then he gives only one thing. So first of all, or, or to begin with, he lists one thing, and he never lists a second or a third, right? And I, I get that sometimes preachers get carried away, and they get all excited about what they're saying, and, and they lose track of where they're going. Uh, that's never happened in this church. I get it, um, but sometimes preachers do that, right? Uh, well, what happens is, is Paul gives this, this one example, but then if you jump over to Romans chapter 9, verse 4, he gives a list of other things. Romans 9, chapter 4 says this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Okay? So all these things, you see, he, he could have given more at the beginning of Romans chapter 3, but he didn't. In fact, he could have continued on even beyond what he said in Romans chapter 9. He focuses them on one thing, though. One thing that, that, to be honest, is often overlooked because it's kind of a confusing word. He focuses them on receiving the oracles of God. That's his focus here in Romans chapter 3. Think about that for, for a minute. Paul's saying, look, of course there's an advantage in being a Jew. Of course. Of course you have a privilege. You, you have an advantage. You've received the sacrament. This, you've received this sacrament, this, this ordinance, which, which points to the word of, of God's promises because you, among all the people in all of history, have, God has chosen you to be the trustees of the oracles of God. You did nothing uh, special, but God has chosen you. Of all, of, he, didn't, he didn't give it to the Romans. He didn't give it to the Egyptians. He didn't give it to the Assyrians or to the Greeks or anyone else. God chose you to give the oracles of God. And think about what that means for a moment. First of all, Paul is pointing specifically to the words of the, of the promise that God gave to Abraham in the context in which uh, he gave him also circumcision. Okay, So you see, the, the circumcision by itself means nothing. But the promise that circumcision represents means everything. There's a big difference there. Circumcision on its own means really nothing. But what circumcision represents means everything. 
And so, but the promise doesn't bring about a blessing unless it is embraced. You have to believe the promise. You have to receive the promise. You have to embrace the promise in order for it to be effective. And so Paul is just reminding us here that the signs confirm the, the signs confirm the promise. And so he says, you are the recipients of the oracles of God, right? Right in the context of them wanting to argue with him about circumcision. He says, remember that, that behind that circumcision, behind what, what it represents, there, there's a promise from God. And why did God give that sign in the first place? Well, what was it there for? It was to confirm the promise, to represent the promise. And so if you have the sign, but you reject the promise, you don't get the blessings of the promise. And so Paul drives them right back to the oracles of God. He drives them right into the scriptures. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. They're trusting in something superficial, separated from from God's word. So what is Paul doing? He's putting the sacrament right back with the scriptures he's driving them right back into the bible he's saying stop trusting your tradition stop trusting what you've been told about the promise and look to the scriptures see why this sign is there see see what god said you have god's word you are unique in receiving that he points them to the scriptures when he says the oracles of god he means something even broader than just the specific promises to the Jewish people. What he's talking about is the Old Testament. You you and I would call it the Old Testament. The oracles of God, Paul is talking, the oracles of God, you and I call the Old Testament. The scriptures, God's word. Now think about it for, for a moment. Of all the people in the world, God determined to reveal himself in a special way, in a unique way to the Jewish people those outside of Israel that were introduced to God in the Old Testament. You can read through the Old Testament. You can see people uh, that are introduced to God. Almost always, they're introduced to God through interactions with the people of Israel. Almost always. And so Paul says, look, God has entrusted you with his oracles, with his promise, with his word. And the one, the one people, the, the, the one nation in the world that God has revealed himself to in a special, unique way. And to go further, he, he speaks of these oracles of God referring to the written uh, kind of transcript of the revelations of God that is given from the time from Adam all the way through the last of the prophets, Malachi. God spoke to Adam. God spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God revealed himself in dreams to Joseph. God spoke to and through Moses, the prophet, and by all the prophets that followed him. And Paul's saying God has entrusted the oracles. He has entrusted the knowledge of himself uniquely revealed in a special way to you. Everybody in the world has God's image written on, on who they are. They're, they, they're image bearers of God. And we saw in Romans chapter 1, that everyone knows God. And we saw in Romans chapter 2 that God's law is written on their heart, but the Jewish people uniquely have access to the oracles of God, the scriptures. The scriptures were given first to the Jewish people. And not only has God revealed himself in a unique way to the Jewish people, 
but it was written down. It's been written down so that it's contained in a book that you can pick up and you can read. It's not as though they heard it once and forgot it, but it was written down so they access to it. And so Paul says, look, you've received the oracles of God. And notice what he's calling the scripture, the oracle of God. Look, I, I get that most people in the world today um, do not view the Bible as inerrant. Or, or, that, or some people will say that it is not the word of God. People reject the idea that it is the oracles of God. People will say, you know, the Bible is a, is a religious book written by spiritual men who, you know, some of them had some mystical experiences, maybe some spiritual experiences, and, and they were doing the best that they could to describe with their own words the encounter that they had with God or with who they thought was God. And, and that may, that may be, a lot of, be what a lot of people think, but that's not what the Bible says about itself. And it's certainly not what Paul thinks about the Bible. There are people who say, well, you know, the Bible, the Bible is not revelation. The Bible is, is human witness to revelation. That's a, that's a common statement as well. It's, it's you know, a, a man writing about what he saw. Revelation is a great encounter. And then we go back and then we'll write about it. It's sort of like a diary or a journal. So the prophet Isaiah is just copying down in his journal what he saw or what he experienced. Or, or Moses was uh, writing down from his memory what God said to him. They say, so God appeared to me, and this happened to me, and then this happened to me, and then God said this. And to be honest, the demotion of the scriptures, the demotion of the scriptures is the first step all heretics make. Right? They begin, step one to becoming a heretic, just in case you're wondering, step one to becoming a heretic is minimizing God's word, rejecting portions of the scriptures. Right? So when I hear folks start to deny inerrancy or, or twist the meaning of scripture so that it fits their specific theological bent, right? they'll say, well, this is the, you know, the, the true, well, they'll say the scripture is true only for spiritual things. Right? The Bible never meant to talk about anything else, so it's true only in spiritual issues, but not other issues. That's step one of becoming a heretic, just so you know. That's not what the Bible says about itself. The Bible says it is the revelation of God. It is the revelation of God. It does not contain God's word. The Bible is God's word. There's a big difference. It's amazing. It's amazing. When you think about it, I know we're Americans. We have access to the scriptures all of our life. If you've been a Christian, you've probably had a Bible your entire Christian life. But when you pick up your Bible, you pick up your, your phone that has your Bible in it or your iPad or whatever it is, you're holding the revelation of God in your hands. There are people who died for this. There are people who happily gave their life to have access to the Word of God. There were people in, in, the, in the, well, really throughout the centuries that died just to translate it into the language of the common men. And you and I get to pick it up and read it whenever we want. It's in our pocket. You, you have an iPhone or, or smartphone or whatever. You have access to the Bible, probably thousands of different translations just in your pocket. 
If you travel across the world, you could email a copy of the Scriptures in whatever language you want, just about. It's incredible. And I know we're Americans, and I know we've had access to it our whole life, but we should never take that for granted. So often, you know, when, when we're struggling, when we're struggling in, in a hard time in life, we're dealing with sin, and we're dealing with heartbreak, we say, God, speak to me. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get through this. God, I, I need you to speak to me. I need you to show me something. And we say that while, the, while a copy of the Scriptures is sitting on the same table where we're praying. God, I need you to speak to me. I, I need to hear from you. But we don't pick up our Bible. We don't pull our phone out of our pocket and open up the, the U version. God did speak to us. And the Bible is more than adequate. The Bible is more than enough. The Bible is how he has chosen to reveal himself to us. Call it special revelation. Paul was not afraid of being accused of being a, a Bible idolater because Paul knew that you cannot worship the one true God and reject his word. You can't worship the one true God and make light of his word. You can't say, well, well, I love God, but you know, you know his, his, the scriptures are kind of unreliable. You can't really trust what the Bible says. You've you got to pick and choose as you read the scriptures. A lot of apologists will, will say that. Paul, Paul knew that his word is the oracle of himself, that God's word is the oracle of himself and his own self-revelation. And this is, this is right where Paul presses, and he says, What's the advantage of being a Jew? What's the advantage of the ordinances of circumcision? You've been the recipients of the oracles of God. The, the, the one people in the world to whom God has revealed himself in a special and unique way. Unlike any other people in the world, throughout world history, you are unique in that way. Paul's saying, of course it's an advantage. It's an incredible advantage. There is nothing like it in all of human history. And so he, he rejects this idea that he's, he's kind of making light of the privileges that God has given to the people of Israel. He absolutely rejects it because he's, he says, even though, even though the outward signs and the covenants must be embraced, even though the, the outward signs and, and circumcision are not what save you and your, tra your traditions are not what save you, you have a tremendous advantage because you have the Word of God. You have them with you, and He's revealed Himself to you in the Messiah, the one who came to save the world, came through you. And you heard from Him. You, you heard Him preach. You watched Him minister. Of course there's an advantage to being a Jew. But he's not finished. He's not finished because there's another objection. In verse 3. Verse 3 says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Do you see that objection? He's essentially saying, you know, if we're God's chosen people, if we're God's chosen people, the Jewish people are chosen and called by God, some of us were unfaithful. Some of us were faithless. 
does, that, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Because God said that we're His chosen people. God called us to be separate. Does that nullify God's faithfulness? Did God lie to us? You're saying that circumcision did mean something, that membership in the Jewish community did mean something. Well, then answer this. In, in, in the sign of, of uh, circumcision, what, what's the great thing that was to, to be brought about? Paul, you're saying that through unfaithfulness, unbelief, many Jewish people have not obtained the promise for which they had received the sign of circumcision. Doesn't that call into question the faithfulness of God? If many Jewish people rejected him, doesn't that call into question the faithfulness of God, the truthfulness of God, the plan of God, or the promise of God? I want you to know how Paul answers this question. He uses really the strongest response that he can find. He, he uses this response over and over, uh, specifically in the book of Romans, but throughout his epistles. It's translated in a number of ways. Um, but uh, they, really, the King James does a, a great job of it based on the way uh, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, right? And uh, uh, what it says is, God forbid, God forbid. The ESV says, by no means, right? So, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And then verse 4, by no means, absolutely not. And Paul brings two arguments in verse 4 against the idea that we could ever even conceive that God would be unfaithful to his promises. First of all, he says it's, it's impossible for God to be unfaithful. Let God be found true, he says. And, and, and let God be found true. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Though every man is a liar, God will still be true. If you stack everybody, every single man on this side, and you stack God on this side, you should choose God every single time. There's, there's something there's something in that, in recognizing the essential faithfulness of God, because events in our lives that are difficult for us to understand, difficult for us to, to endure, our first instinct is to think that we are, or that we would be, more faithful than God. If, if I was in his place, I wouldn't do this. And this is a common argument against Christianity. We say, well, if God is good and God is all-powerful, God knows everything, then why does evil still exist? Right? And I, I, hear, uh, I hear atheist people who, who reject even the existence of God and say, well, if all of that's true and evil still exists, then God cannot be good. It's a common thing. Well, either God is not good or God is, is not omnipotent, all-powerful. The Apostle Paul is rejecting this idea, and he quotes from Jeremiah and also the Psalms to do it. And so often when we're going through an extremely difficult time, we say, God, I, I don't get why you would allow this. I, I, I don't understand why did you allow this terrible thing to happen? Because I wouldn't have allowed it. So often we're tempted to think that I would be a better God than he is. 
And Paul flat out rejects this idea. And he clinches his argument by going to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm 51, verse 4. Now, uh, I don't know if you, if you remember the context of Psalm 51, verse 4. If you've never read Psalm 51, you should read it. Uh, and you should turn there now. David uh, has sinned. David's the author of Psalm 51. He sinned, and he broke every one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, if, I'm sure you know the story of David. He uh, sees a beautiful woman who is another man's wife, and uh, he sees her, and he lusts after her, and um, he takes her, and he uh, kind of has an affair with her, and then to cover it all up, he has her husband killed, and he tries to cover all of this stuff, and he, he, he's doing all of these wicked sins. He basically breaks all, every single one of the Ten Commandments, especially the commandments um, forbidding adultery and murder. And so Psalm 51 is King David's repentance of that. He says in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, Lord, I acknowledge that I deserve your punishment. I acknowledge that I deserve your judgment. I acknowledge that I sinned and I sinned against you. And Paul goes to a believing, sinful, but repentant Jewish King David. And he says, you know, even David recognized that when God seemed to be being unfaithful to his promises of mercy, he was in fact being faithful in his punishment of sin because David deserved it. Maybe Paul's even hinting, you know, if, if you'd like to be like David, you'd find out how faithful God is. If you, if you want to be like him, what he is indicating is that God is faithful even in his punishment of sin, which is obviously extremely uncomfortable. Because there are two ways for God to be faithful in response to the giving of the covenant. He can be faithful in blessing us as we obey, as we trust and obey. Or he can be faithful in his wrath if we reject those promises and live apart from his word and his law. Either way, God's faithful. God's faithful regardless. God's faithful. He's always faithful because the sign itself, though it always entails privileges, it also entails responsibilities. And when, when a promise is rejected, or when it's neglected, or when it's taken for granted, when, it's, uh, when we presume upon it, then comes God's wrath. It's not a manifestation of him being unfaithful. Because even when he called Abraham out of his home country, by his grace he required Abraham to leave his family and to leave his country. The covenant always entails responsibility. It's established by grace. It's received by grace. We're kept in it by grace. But it always comes with responsibilities. And Paul's saying, look, God has not been unfaithful. That's, uh, that's not an objection that will work. In fact, God, it's impossible for God to be unfaithful. In fact, the very objection points out your need for repentance, that you might find his faithfulness to be, to be brought upon you. Brought upon you in mercy and not in wrath. Because when we stand here and when we say, because, because of my struggles, because of my pain, God is unfaithful. 
I could do a better job of what he's doing. If I knew what God knew, if I was as powerful as God is, then I would do a better job. I would do things differently. And I would never have allowed this thing to happen. Paul says it's impossible for God to be unfaithful. It's impossible. God is faithful in good times and in bad times. God is faithful to his promise and he is true to his promise, whether things are, are going really well for us or extremely difficult for us. When we sin and we're punished, God is faithful. When, when we are faithful and God blesses us, God is still faithful. The objection, the idea that God would be unfaithful is an indication that we need to repent. If my life is difficult and I say, God, you're, you're, you're not fulfilling your promise to me, that's an indication I don't understand God's promises and I don't understand God. And I need to be driven back to the scriptures to see it, back to the oracles of God. Well, we're not the Jewish people. We are God's people through faith. And while we have salvation, that salvation is not free. We receive it by grace. But it was paid for with a great cost. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And elders, if you want to move forward, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starting with verse 23, says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God is faithful. God's word and God's promises all pointed to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's work on Calvary and his resurrection from the dead fulfilled those promises. And through a faith in him, we have salvation. Through a faith in him, we are justified and we are adopted as God's children. We go from being God's enemy to being God's son or God's daughter. And that was done through the work of Jesus Christ. As his body was torn apart and as his blood was spilled, it was done for the sins that we committed. Well, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It most certainly is a celebration, but it's a somber celebration because we're reminded of the fact that Christ laid his life down for us. But we're also confronted with the fact that we've sinned and that the Lord of heaven sacrificed himself for us. And so while we celebrate the fact that Christ laid his life down for us, uh, this celebration is something that is for Christians only. If, if you're here and you are not a Christian, we're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcomed, and I'd love to talk to you after the service. But the Lord's Supper is not for you because it doesn't make sense for you to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ laid his life down for your sins if you don't believe that that happened. This is a perfect time to, to pray. This is a perfect time as, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to, to reflect on your own life, 
the condition of your heart, to seek forgiveness for the sins that you struggle with, the sins that you commit. It's also a great time to talk to someone else in the room. If there's someone in the room that needs to be forgiven or you need to seek, you need to ask for forgiveness, feel free to get up and talk to someone.